Hello all and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our OITE review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine, and we are on that basic science train. We are going over all of the, uh, not all, but we're going over a lot of the basic science, you know, a lot of these things you kind of have to read um, on your own, but we're here to help as best as we can. And, um, I mean, without further ado, let's just go ahead and hop in, into today's episode. Our episode today is sponsored by Panacea Financial, a digital bank built for doctors by doctors. From medical student to attending, Panacea offers free checking and loan options just for physicians, including their PRN personal loan that gives you up to 75000 at an interest rate less than half of a credit card. Panacea Financial can also refinance your medical school debt with no maximums or help with commercial needs such as practice or surgery center buy-ins. Visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to learn how you can join the physicians nationwide who expect more from their bank. Panacea Financial is a division of the Primus member FDIC. And please, if you go, mention it, Nailed It Ortho in the How Did You Hear About Us section. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Now, how are long bones formed? So the uh, apodicular skeleton forms between about four to eight weeks of gestation. And uh, the uh, bones are formed from the mesenchymal anlage at six weeks gestation. So between that four to eight weeks, like what I was talking about. And uh, these, uh, like you said, they vascular buds are bringing these progenitor cells, these osteoblasts, and there's a single ossification center where we then see that ding, 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 went beta catenin pathway, like Boom. we had hammered uh, <laughs> a few minutes hammered earlier. In. And again, these proteins are coming up. So uh, a hint to everybody, they are important. The went protein binds to LRP5 and 6, which prevents phosphorylation of beta catenin the beta catenin can then travel into the nucleus of these cells and stimulate differentiation of these osteoprogenitor cells into osteoblasts these and these are at the primary ossification centers which is the kind of the uh long bone or the diaphysis of what we think of the adult bones but in the embryo it's the primary ossification center. And then you get secondary ossification centers developing at the ends or the epiphyseal region of these bones. And um, the junction of the epiphyseal region uh, and the diaphyseal region or the junction between the secondary and the primary centers of ossification is where we get that longitudinal growth through the various uh, areas of the growth plate that we are bound to cover uh, next here. So um, how many growth plates exist in immature long bones? So you have two, kind of what you just, you know, you just mentioned your primary ossification center and your secondary one. So you have your physes, which is kind of more of a horizontal growth plate. And then on top of your physes is your epiphyses, which is a little more of a spherical 
uh, a spherical growth play. And, and I know you, you mentioned a little bit earlier about these kind of zones and these lacrosse and, and different things, which we'll talk about in a bit. But just know um, in immature long bones, you have your physes, which are your, kind of your horizontal growth plate, and you have your spherical growth plates, which are your epiphyses. Um, so what are, I feel like this is a high yield question, but what are the physial uh, cartilage zones and function? of that. So we're not talking about the epiphyses, but we're talking about the, the physes. So what are some of the cartilage zones in the, in the physes and their functions in each zone? Yeah. So the uh, three main zones uh, you have to know are reserve, prolifer proliferative, and hypertrophic. And the reserve zone does what the name sounds like it does. It's, it's the storage area. It stores lipids, it stores glycogen, it stores proteoglycan aggregates and it's pretty much kind of the uh, area where all of the energy needed to then progress from the reserve zone to the proliferative zone is found so that these these cells enter they leave the reserve zone and they enter the proliferative zone with an abundance of uh, fat and glycogen and all this stuff to uh help them grow and form uh, cells that cause the physis to longitudinally grow. Then you have the proliferative zone, um, which is where you see these chondrocytes start stacking on each other, but they're still relatively flat. Uh, they, you get a lot of cellular proliferation. So you're getting more of these cells forming very tightly bound stacks on top of each other. And you also get an increase in proteoglycans. And the reason why you see this increase in proteoglycans is whenever you get an increase in proteoglycans, you get an increase in water. And when you get an increase in water, you get an increase in the stability of that area or that zone to provide uh, improved compressive strength. Um, and then you move from the proliferative zone to the hypertrophic zone and hypertrophy, like we know when we uh, hit our max on bench is <laughs> your muscles grow. So the same thing happens to the chondrocytes. They, the chondrocytes are all going to increase in size and their, their maturity is regulated by a bunch of hormones, local growth factors, and uh, the osteoblasts uh, are kind of migrating in this area where you're also within the hypertrophic zone, you see maturation, degeneration, degeneration and provisional calcification. So um, the reserve zone reserves all the energy, proliferative zone helps in, increase the number of cells available for longitudinal growth. And then the hypertro uh, hypertrophic zone increase the actual size of growth and the uh, the longitudinal growth of the uh, growth plate there. And um, as we also know, there are certain conditions that then affect these different zones and uh, affect these different areas. What are some of the common uh, medical conditions that are going to affect these zones? Yeah. So if you think about what you just, you know, explained so eloquently in, in these different zones of, uh, and their function, it can, you can kind of tease out what will happen or what diseases will affect where. So if you think about the reserve zone, 
uh, which is which functions to to store lipids and glycogen and proteoglycan aggregates. Um, this is going to be where your lysosomal storage diseases, uh, you know, storage, it stores lipids. If you can't store it, this is where your lysosomal storage diseases will affect, um, such as kind of like gossures and different things of that sort. Uh, so when you look at your proliferative zone where you have uh, cellular proliferation, um, this is where uh, certain conditions like growth hormone uh, will have an effect. So this is kind of see, you can see disorders in the zone with gigantism or on the opposite side, achondroplasia, which is, uh, I think, you know, definitely asked about. In your hypertrophic zone, I feel like there's always, there's a bunch of stuff that, that goes on in your hypertrophic zone. Um, but this hypertrophic zone, which we said, where we're getting our bench press max and these chondrocytes are increasing in size and getting mature and, you know, your osteoblasts are starting to come around. Um, these are this zone widens and rickets. Um, this is the origin of enchondromas. Uh, this is where uh, mucopolysaccharidosis can be seen, just as uh, Morikios and Hurler syndrome. This is where physio fractures can occur, and this is also where skiffy or slipped capital femoral epiphyses. Um, this is through that zone, and I think that's a, a high yield. They ask that a lot, so definitely know wick, rickets, enchondromas, and skiffy. And then uh, these kind of mealy polysaccharidosis also affect the hypertrophic zone. Now, we're on chondrocytes and, you know, people may have went to sleep and woken up now and <laughs> have, have tuned in and missed the last 20 minutes. But uh, if, you, if you're still sticking with us, uh, we, we commend you for uh, sticking out this basic science. But what is, what is IHH or I guess Indian Hedgehog uh, released by chondrocytes? What does that do? So then, uh, so Indian hedgehog released by chondrocytes causes a release of PTH related uh, protein or related peptide, which in the reserve zone is going to stimulate chondrocyte proliferation. And uh, in the uh, proliferative zone, it, in, it, it actually it inhibits it. Um, but Indian hedgehog, uh, kind of a side note, is also responsible for uh, osteophyte formation and arthritis. And I bring that up because that actually was a question on the OITE, I think two or three years ago. Um, so uh, just kind of a quick bullet point there. Indian hedgehog is responsible for osteophyte formation and adult arthritis, but in the uh, growing growth plate, it does cause a release of PTHRP, which can stimulate chondrocyte proliferation um, in the reserve zone, but not in the proliferative zone. Um, and what supplies the chondrocytes uh, in the periphery to help with lateral or appositional growth? Yeah, so this is going to be that uh, groove of Ranvier or Ran Ranvier. Um, and this is kind of like the, a wedge-shaped area uh, or wedge-shaped zone of cells at the periphery of these uh, epiphyses. And this is going to give you that appositional um, growth or, or, or growth in width. So if you, it's really easy. If you, if you Google this or this groove of Ranvier, R-A-N-V-I-E-R, uh, -E if you Google that, there's a nice picture and you'll see it. these are going to be these, these cells uh, that are going to be zoned at the periphery of these epiphyses. They're going to help give your appositional uh, growth or they're going to increase the width. Uh, now, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, uh, but what is the perichondral uh, fibrous ring of lacrosse? Uh, so that's going to be a fibrous tissue um, around the periphery of the physis, and it's going to anchor that 
periphery and cause more uh, width to the physis and this fibrous tissue helps in incre increase the strength, but also that increased width increases the moment of inertia, which increases the overall strength of that uh, structure. So uh, not a very interesting structure, but still important nonetheless. Um, what are, and then, so now we're gonna go into a little bit of a AO basic. So those of you that have been to AO basic and those of you that uh, uh, are on trauma right now, you should know this, this next section, uh, like the back of your hand, but what are the two types of fracture healing and what determines what type of healing will occur? Yeah. And again, this is just like you said, this is a, these are the basics for which all those principles are, are based on. And, 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 you know, eventually this, this leads to kind of how you choose different implants and fracture characteristics. But uh, just to start off basic, you have primary and then you have secondary bone healing and what determines um, kind of which one will occur is the degree of stability, uh, which determines the strain, which determines the type. Um, so strain, like we said earlier, is going to be a change in length over the primary length. So if something was, uh, let's do even numbers, was 10 cents long, and it, it has now moved to, um, to, to let's say, uh, uh, 20 centimeters long, that is what we call a 200% strain. At least I'm pretty sure that's 200%. I think so. Um, that's going to be 200% because you're thinking about the change um, over the original. Or maybe that's 100% because the change would be from 20 to 10, which would be 10. So that might be 100. Anyways, uh, nonetheless, <laughs> uh, in environments where you have less than 2% of strain, it's going to lead you more towards primary bone healing uh, versus environments where you have anywhere from two to 10% of strain. It's going to lead you towards secondary bone healing. And then when you have environments where there's just a lot of motion going on greater than 10%, those are going to lead you more towards your non-union. So, you know, how, how kind of stable and how mobile this fracture is and how, how much it moves around. So again, less than 2% of strain, you kind of generally think towards you're having kind of primary uh, uh, bone healing. And then, um, for anywhere from two to 10% of strain or the, it moves around a little bit more, your kind of your constructs such as casts or external fixators or intramedular devices where you have a little bit of strain, that's gonna lead you more towards secondary bone healing versus our, you know, our fractures where it's a simple transverse or it's an oblique fracture where you can get good compression of those two bone ends and you can get them the kind of absolute stability where they're not moving around, that'll lead you more towards primary bone healing. And just to reiterate this, uh, when will there be primary bone healing and how does it occur? You'll get primary bone healing when there's less than 2% strain. And uh, that is seen with absolute stability constructs. So we're thinking um, like a, a lag screw or <clears throat> a plate-based compression um, or uh like a, I don't know, like a, a proximal tibia osteotomy. Uh, you're gonna, you're gonna, you want that strong compression and as little movement between the fracture fragments as possible uh, to get that less than two percent strain. Um, and the primary bone healing 
uh, is going to occur through haversion, remodeling, and cutting cones rather than fractured callus formation. And uh, it's really through intramembranous type of healing rather than endochondral because there's no cartilage uh, matrix that's laid down prior to the bone matrix. It's uh, just really these osteoclasts and osteoblasts at the fracture site and uh, through the periosteum are in such close contact with each other that you get the cutting cones with the osteoclasts and then the osteoblasts come in and follow and uh, help form bone between those two fracture fragments. Um, one thing that I always not necessarily struggled with, but had a, a difficulty understanding how this was measured. And in true practice, you, you can't say for a fact, oh, this, this implant is going to cause less than 2% fracture strain. So I'm going to not see any callus formation when this heals. It's, it's kind of a theoretical concept and, and reproduced in the lab, but just know that the, the things that cause direct bony compression and absolute stability, you're going to see this primary bone healing. Um, but uh, going to secondary bone healing, what are the stages of secondary bone healing? Yep. So um, stage of secondary bone healing, number one, you have inflammation. So, you know, boom, you have a you have a um, an accident or you know this traumatic insult to the soft tissues, which the energy goes through the soft tissues into the bone, and you have a fracture. And so the first stage is you have inflammation, you have a hematoma that forms, then um, you kind of have this osteoblast and fibroblast proliferation, and you know some some research says it's due to BMP or bone morphogenic protein signaling that kind of helps. Uh, with this osteoblast and fibroblast, and you have granulation tissue around the fracture ends. Uh, and this can occur, you know, for, you know, a couple of weeks or so, or inflammation is, is as soon as, you know, kind of right after it happens. And after that, it leads to repair, which is the second stage. And this is kind of dependent on the mechanical environment um, that we were talking about a little bit earlier. So if this is a high strain environment or if it's a low strain environment, if it's a low strain environment, meaning things aren't moving around as much, uh, this is going to lead you more towards osteoblastic um, activity, where we talk about you know more like primary bone healing and kind of how stable the construct is. Versus if this has higher strain, this is going to drive you more towards a chondro um, chondrocytic um, type of uh, environment or differentiation. And that's what we were talking about a little bit earlier with our endochondral um, bone uh, formation, where you have cartilage, which is which is formed first, which is later then uh, replaced by bone. The uh, cartilage isn't turned into bone, but it is replaced by bone. Just just a quick side note. Um, so again, with this repair stage, you have your primary callus, which is kind of within two weeks, and you have a soft callus that is later replaced by hard callus, which is our woven bone, and then. The last phase is remodeling, uh, which can occur for months up to years. And this is where we look at things like Wolf's Law, we were talking a little bit about earlier, which is kind of the bone's response to the mechanical stress placed on it. This allows for um, bone to assume no configuration after time. But remodeling, this is this is kind of years. You know, that, it takes a it takes a while um, for this remodeling to occur. So they can continue to occur for a long time. 
Now we talk a little bit about healing um, and, you know, we have patients that, you know, and there are different medications that are out there and different types of um, uh, substances that patients can use. And so what are some medications or substances that can affect fracture healing? Uh, big one is nicotine. I mean, for people that still smoke out there, don't do it. Uh, for more reasons than just your bones won't heal, but uh, nicotine and even even nicotine patches. I mean, uh, I had a lot of patients come into our kind of resident fracture clinic, uh, and they're they're saying, "Oh no, I have the nicotine patches," and and that still does the same thing because nicotine <laughs> is still going through their bloodstream, um, and even though they're not smoking or chewing anymore, it's it's still detrimental because what it does is. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I think that it, the main mechanism is it actually causes vasoconstriction of the end arterioles responsible for providing that necessary blood supply to the fractured area. And yeah, I think so. And so that's that's really the big thing is for these smokers, they they have to quit cold turkey. I mean, there, there are no supplements that. Uh, or no supplemental like patches that they can take they can uh, that are going to help them and then um, uh, NSAIDs is a little bit up for debate um, in this regard uh, just because it's it's classically taught that uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen, Aleve, Toradol those sort of things are going to decrease uh, fracture union. Um, I I think that there's a brand new paper that's, I don't know if it's published yet, but I read the abstract of it. And um, their conclusion was that long-term uh, NSAID use did in fact uh, decrease fracture healing, but they were talking about greater than three weeks after their injury, if they were taking daily non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So I think in the in the first couple of days post-op, it's okay to add in a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory and they, they didn't see any decrease in, in healing at that point. But uh, nicotine, NSAIDs, NSAIDs have also been found to uh, decrease uh, union in lumbar spinal fusions. So that's another thing to, to avoid in, the, in those patients. And then also diet and, and protein malnutrition. Um, does have negative effects in fracture healing. And that was one of the topics I wanted to explore in residency, but I found it uh, difficult with our patient population. So if anyone out there is really looking into uh, a research topic or project and is really looking at uh, protein intake with fracture healing, and I just couldn't find a good way to really monitor that in terms of getting patients on a strict diet that gave them, let's say like one gram of protein per pound of body weight versus half a gram and keeping them on that for six months and seeing which ones healed and what didn't. But protein malnutrition is also a, 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 a something that can affect fracture healing. So um, yeah. let's say uh, you got a patient, they quit smoking, they're not taking ibuprofen, they have a pretty good diet, probably could be better, but it is what it is. What are some devices that can be used to improve fracture healing? Let's say they're, they're three months out from their injury and they're just slow to heal. 
Yeah. So, you know, there being some studies and some um, some people out there that will use like an ultrasound um, to help with fracture healing. So kind of this low intensity pulse ultrasound, which has been shown to increase the mechanical strength of callus. So uh, again, it says ultrasound pulses that increase the mechanical strength of callus. So ultrasound is one thing. And so we use an electrical bone stimulator. And the mechanism by which this works is this increases osteoblast activity by decreasing oxygen um, concentration and increasing the tissue pH, which at first to me was a little bit um, backwards because earlier we learned about our osteoprogenitor cells uh, in an environment that would lead it towards turning into an osteoblast would be of a low strain um, and high oxygen. But for this, it's saying this increases activity. Uh, osteoblast activity by decreasing O2 concentration and increasing tissue pH, which honestly still doesn't really make much sense to me. I don't know if this is one of those things you just need to memorize, but I, I don't know. Do you have any way of remembering that or is it just, you I, know, I honestly don't know why. I don't. And I, I look at some of these things as if you're having patients that are on these sort of uh, external devices to rely on bone healing um, you probably should also be planning a uh, revision surgery with bone grafting because, uh, and maybe I just wasn't ever on a service long enough to see the final effects of bone stimulators or this pulsed ultrasound therapy, but I just never, I never really saw a lot of improvement with these things, even though there are studies that do show that they do a, a decent job at all of this stuff, but I think it's just important to know that that you do have these other things that you can improve fracture healing with like bone stimulator and ultrasound. But uh, again, I don't have a great way of remembering the function. Yeah, me either. But um, let's see here. Uh, I think we've kind of talked about some of these terms. Um, but, uh, or maybe we, actually we haven't, but maybe in terms of bone graft, uh, we hear our attendings at, at conference say like, hey, what's your plan? And you say, oh, I just want to put some bone graft in there. And then they're like, well, what kind of bone graft? And uh, so what are, the, what are these terms osteoconductive, osteoinductive, and osteogenic mean? Yes, yes. And definitely good to know these different terms. And um, so osteoconductive is is a, a material that acts as a scaffold and gives you a framework for bone growth. Um, osteoinductive, these are going to be things that stimulate bone formation, like growth factors such as BMP or uh, bone morphogenic protein. And osteogenic is where you actually have like, you know, osteogenic, this is, a, we actually have bone cells. So you have primitive mesenchymal cells, osteoblasts and osteocytes. So again, osteoconductive kind of just giving you that scaffold or framework for bone growth, but there aren't any like actual, you know, cells in there as far as um, osteoblasts and osteocytes, because that would make it osteogenic. And then osteoinductive, you don't have the actual like primitive mesenchymal stem cells but you have growth factors or anything that stimulates bone formation. So different materials have different properties or some materials that have properties of all three um, that are all, you know, osteogenic, inductive, and osteoconductive. And there are some materials that just have one of these products. Uh, and there are some materials that have a couple of these products. And we'll touch about that. We'll talk about a couple of them here in a bit. 
Um, but what is creeping substitution? I always hear about this when you start to read these uh, these chapters, these sections on like osteoconductive and inductive and uh, you know osteogenesis or osteogenic. What is that? Yeah, and it, I I think about it as like is it truly creeping? It, it it's the bone is creeping on the bone graft or other uh, structure that you have in there to use that to create more bone. So um, it's seen with like a cancellous, like the cancellous chips that you put in uh, uh, like a bone like void or defect um, during like a proximal tibia, uh, tibia plateau uh, fracture fixation. And what, what happens is you have these old trabeculae, but you're actually laying down new bone on that old scaffold. So it's creeping substitution. And, and how they're gonna ask this on the OITE is they may show, or they may tell you that cancellous chips were used or uh, allograft was used. Um, what is the method of uh, incorporation of these uh, graft substitutions or graft substances um, and in this fracture healing process? And that's gonna be by creeping substitution. Um, and then, uh, when, when are, when do you use like cortical bone graft? Yeah. So these are going to be for structural defects. Like I remember we talked about it, uh, when we talked about our proximal humerus fractures with, you know, missing calcar and we talked about using kind of a, a, a fill, um, uh, a, a fibular strut allograft to give you the kind of that, that structural support. Um, you know, that, that can be an allograft, but it can also, you know, be an autograph where you get some a piece of bone from the iliac crest, which gives you um, good support because it's going to give you that, that support and it's going to have a slow, uh, a slow turnover and incorporation as well. So um, these are going to be used for when you're trying to get, again, structural uh, support and when we're dealing with structural defects. Uh, do fresh grafts um, have more or less immunogenicity? Fresh grafts are going to have uh, more immunogenicity and they have the highest risk of disease transmission. Um, however, some of their substances are more preserved. So it's, it has its good and bad sides. I really haven't seen a lot of fresh allograft used. Um, but then you go to the opposite end of that spectrum, or I guess, we'll, no, we'll just go through the whole spectrum a little bit here. So you have fresh, which is highest immunogenicity. You have fresh frozen, which is basically you just took a fresh thing and you put it in the freezer for a bit and you took it out uh, like your burritos. And then freeze dried is uh, the least immunogenic. So uh, most is fresh, least is freeze dried, but you do compromise some of the uh, structural integrity with the um, freeze-dried uh, allograft. Um, and kind of st sticking on this bone graft, when or what are the grafting properties of DBM or demineralized bone matrix? Yeah, so um, DBM, uh, which is 
I remember for a while I was like, oh, what is this? But what what it says is it's a, it's an acidic bone uh, bone matrix that's extracted from the allograft. So we talked a little bit earlier that our bone matrix is, you know, made of type one collagen and um, alkaline phosphatase, osteocalcin, um, osteonectin. You know, all these different cellular proteins. So this is going to be the acidic bone bone matrix that's going to be extracted from the allograft and the grafting properties from these. They're going to be, um, it's going to be osteoconductive uh, without any structural support. If you think it's kind of bone, just kind of some bone, bone matrix, it's not going to have as much structural support as like a cortical strut um, autograph would have. So these are going to be osteoconductive or it's going to give you that, uh, that scaffold for bony ingrowth. And it has a little bit of osteoinductive activities or inducing uh, bone formation, but it's just more osteoconductive. So again, DBM is more osteoconductive. Now, what are the grafting properties of calcium phosphate, which I know um, many people use um, when they're dealing with kind of those depressed or split depressed tibial plateau fractures where you're tamping up the articular surface and you may be using some type of substance to kind of fill, fill that gap or fill that void. Yep, and, and that's, so calcium phosphate is uh, osteoconductive, meaning that it is going to act as a scaffold or a framework for bone growth. It has the highest compressive strength. Uh, shout out to one of my attendings back uh, in my home program, Dr. Davis. He uh, would always say that phosphate is fierce because it has the highest compressive strength of any graft material. So that was just an easy way for us to remember it at our program was phosphate is fierce, whereas uh, the flip side to that uh, is the synthetic bone graft that is the fastest to resorb is what? Yeah, so it's going to be calcium sulfate. So um, no, again, of, of these different uh, these different graft materials, that calcium phosphate is going to have the highest compressive strength. It's calcium sulfate, you know, sulfate soft, quick to resorb. I don't know. However you want to think about it. Calcium sulfate is going to be the fastest one to resorb. So you, you put it in there, you turn around, you go to the back table, and you come back, and it's gone. You're like, oh, when? <laughs> where did my, my graft go? <laughs> That's that calcium sulfate for you, okay? Thank you all for listening to that episode of the Nail It Ortho podcast. I know there are little audio glitches here and there, but thank you all for sticking it through and uh, learning a little bit more about, you know, some of these osteoinductive conductive things. Please hit that subscribe button. And again, if this is your first time listening to this, we are working on a little com- podcast companion book. It'll likely be a PDF of the um, of these, you know, things that we've gone through so far, such as like trauma, um, sports, and now basic science. We'll try to put it up on Amazon or something sometime here pretty soon. But go ahead and put your info in the description, in the podcast description, uh, so you'll be the one of the first ones to know. And who knows, if you're in that email, you may get a um, a a reminder or something a little bit early before everybody else. The price may be pretty low, so we'll see. Uh, but until next episode.